Cocaine's a hell of a drug. Hey and welcome, I'm Dave and you are listening to Life is Peachy, a nostalgia-fueled podcast that allows me to sit here and waffle on about the bands and the albums that became the soundtrack to my life. Is that gasoline I smell? Growing up in the 90s, the early 2000s and while we're at it, sharing a few memories from Her Name is Murder Productions. first episode of the Life is Peachy podcast, I chatted with the one and only Derek Green, looking back over Sepultura's highly controversial... Hello, Governor. Are you alright? Hello there, love. I'm doing quite alright here. Fancy a cup of tea? Absolutely. <laughs> An album which definitely continued the band's evolution from their roots and towards the continued implement of groove and new metal into their overarching sound along with another point of discussion, the addition of a new member replacing an original within the lineup. You got a lot of nerve showing your face around here, Hauser. Look who's talking. And I only bring this up because an album like Against rates as one of my all-time favorite albums, period. There's no other Sepultura album that sounds anything like it. I wish I knew how to quit you. And this is how it often can be with music. It's subjective, yet it can also be so very personal. It's more than the black sheep of the back catalogue. It's more the things change. Sometimes you don't know where you're going with music. You know, you're just kind of lost. Albums that facilitate a platform for extreme fan uproar and criticism can often become the catalyst for turning your back on that band, creating resentment that can last a lifetime. We can work it out. And just to be clear, I definitely was not immune to feeling disappointment in various releases from some of my favorite bands. As much as I was open to progression, I did make sense of one thing. Progression was often a double-edged sword. It seemed rarely successful to come out on the other side of the tunnel, unscathed and without casualties. Do you think you got through to Prime? Let's hope so. Because if I didn't, we're all going to look like burnout toaster ovens. The floodgates of heavy music opened hard and fast for me, thanks to Metallica. <laughs> was then quickly discovering bands like Pantera, and just when everyone thinks that heavy metal has been totally exhausted, Sepultura released their new album, and it's amazing. I don't know if you've heard it, but it's it's awesome. Sepultura coming into the ladder in between Chaos AD and 1996's Roots. (laughs) 
Metal was in quite a strange place during the 90s with grunge music hitting center stage and many bands were left figuring out their next move in order to survive. And right around the corner was the incoming influx of new metal kicking off into the later part of the decade. Bands like Pantera and Sepultura introduced the element of groove and Brazil Sepultura began toying with new metal infused songwriting thanks to Max Calavera's interest in bands like Deftones and Korn. and rising, it seemed many artists were beginning to experiment and explored opening their sound to other influences and a vast collection of texture and colour. Oakland's Machine Head were no stranger to this concept. Forming in the Bay Area, this band was born from the thrash metal scene with Roadrunner Records 1994's Burn My Eyes, largely considered a classic heavy metal thrash metal debut. All the while with singer-guitarist Rob Flynn's hair in cornrows and decked out in street urban attire. The more things change, 1997 sophomore evolved the band's scope, bringing a heavy dose of groove into the mix and not shying away from exploring more progressive songwriting and storytelling in the music's emotion and narratives. But it would also mark the final appearance of original member and guitarist Logan Matter, who left at the extremely early stages of writing for The Burning Red. Machine Head were now in need of a second guitarist and the music climate around them was rapidly shifting. What was next? Well, by the time we were coming to the end of the century, the heavy music scene had well and truly arrived at its newest evolutionary peak, new metal. In 1999, I was in the early years of high school, fueling my imagination and aspirations with music and cinema. I loved CDs, and whenever I could afford it, that's where my money would go, investing in this pursuit of growing through the discovery and connection with new music. And because I obviously couldn't afford buying all of these new albums every single week, I would go to the CD stores on the weekend and investigate all these new releases I had come across. Thanks to magazines like Metal Hammer and Kerrang, free compilation CDs and content from Roadrunner Records fan subscription, Outsider. Excellent. I would set myself up with the headphones provided at the CD store listening station, crank the volume, and wait, wait with bated breath 
for the opening song and more importantly that opening riff let's party what it was all about for me, that first moment of impact. That opening riff had a sense of amazement and escapism and a smile was left on my face, then that was it. Anytime I could come back to the shops, I would once again look over the cover art, the track names, band pictures, the artwork. This is how I fell into obsession with 1999's The Burning Red. Hail the future we bring. We bring chaos to blocks, riots to watch, we're up front. Building that anticipation for the moment I could finally have it for myself. Playing through my own speakers at home, in my bedroom, headbanging and playing air guitar. As I already enjoyed music with groove elements and was currently obsessed with all things new metal, an album like Machine Head's The Burning Red really made sense to me. I was already a huge fan of bands mixing up their style and instantly saw it as the best of both worlds. This is all we have. We have nothing else. But this lasts. Throwing into the mix Ross Robinson's unorthodox and emotional production ethics, all captured at Indigo Ranch with his 90s A-Team and a Terry Date mix, to me this was the brutally beautiful third album which wore its heart on its sleeve. And if you take away all of the bubblegum zeitgeist and trend setting that saturated much of the pop culture in the late 90s, if you remove all of that clutter and distraction, then what we are essentially left with at the actual core is quite possibly the most vulnerable, intimate, and in many ways, intense Machine Head album today. A release that really highlights another dimension and depth to the band's emotion, heaviness, and songwriting. These were my hopes and aspirations when discovering new music. This connection, this sense of self and identity, a voice and expression through what music gave me. In many ways, I wouldn't be the person I am today speaking to you right now without some of these albums and some of the storytelling shared by artists like my guest today. about to deep dive into such an album so <laughs> let's just get into this and make it a reality. Last night show, last night show.
Flynn. Welcome to the Life is Beachy podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. You're welcome, man. Glad to be here. Okay, so yeah, to warm things up, looking back, before Machine Head, before even writing and playing music in bands, what did you look for? What did you seek out and hope for with regards to connecting with music and having music in your life? Oh, yeah. I was born in the late 60s, and so 70s radio would have been what my parents were playing, like pop radio. I remember this guy, Jim Croce, came out with a song called Bad, Bad Leroy Brown. Bad, bad Leroy Brown, baddest man in the whole damn town, meaner than old King Kong, meaner than a junkyard dog. I used to wait for it to come on the radio and memorize every lyric. And, you know, I'm probably three or four years old, and I just wanted to memorize every word so that I could sing along with it. And, you know, I lived in a part of San Lorenzo, which was just kind of like a giant white trash town at the time. The people that he was singing about in that song were the people in my neighborhood. And so I really connected with that song because there was a bunch of like <laughs> mean motherfuckers all on my block. A lot of gnarly dudes and gnarly people. So uh, I just connected with that song. And then music just was constantly part of my life. Some of my earliest memories, I just always wanted to learn all the lyrics for songs. progress to a point where you got into learning an instrument or wanting to even start a band so you could you know express yourself that way through music i was really introverted as a kid very very introverted didn't have a lot of social skills you know i was adopted my parents couldn't have other kids we had a big family and had a lot of cousins and i always loved performing like i always wanted to be an actor, I wanted to be in the movies, I wanted to be on stage. It would be like this alter ego would come out if I went on stage or started performing for people. So I was always entering the talent shows at school and I'm singing disco songs or just whatever. I liked that. It's like almost like putting on a cape, right? And like you become Superman or, or Batman or whatever. And so that's what it was for me. And then I'd take it off and just kind of go back to being this quiet, introverted kid. This looks like a job for Superman. <laughs> Machine Head appeared to be riding quite a wave of fanfare and anticipation for what was to come next, thanks to the acclaim of your first two albums and obviously in particular, your massive debut. Burn my eyes. I had been going in bands for 10 years by the time the more things changed drop. I had been in Forbidden, I had been in Violence. Violence had toured a lot in America. We had never been to Europe. But then Burn My Eyes happened and just 
it exploded, shot us into the stratosphere. The second record was very successful, but we had a member change. It was a little difficult in that sense, but just having all that fame thrust immediately upon us, even though I'd been doing it for a while, I don't think we ever expected it to be that big. I mean, it was just a crazy ride, and it was an awesome ride, but I started changing. You know, I don't want to say I got sick of being famous, but I kind of got sick of being famous really quick. Yeah, sure. I didn't always handle it very well. Coming out of the more things change, where were you up mentally when entering the third album cycle? And creatively, what were your hopes and aspirations for The Burning Red? Logan quit, and it was kind of a tumultuous ending. And between the fame and Logan quitting and becoming very self-destructive, a lot of my addictions were taking over my life. I became bulimic because I started freaking out on my weight. I went through a lot of inner turmoil. If you would have hung out with me back then from the outside, like I would have just been this fucking crazy dude that was just popping pills and raging drunk and smashing shit and <laughs> going crazy. Would have been probably one of the funnest nights of your life. Do I really look like a guy with a plan? But internally, I was falling apart. So when that tour cycle was done, Logan quit, and I ended up going to therapy to address my feelings about all of this Logan quitting and just my own self-destruction. Seriously dangerous path. Like, I was going to be dead pretty soon if I didn't change something. kind of like rehab basically I was ready to change and I was ready to let go of some of this baggage and I had a lot of stuff that had happened in my childhood they call it peeling the onion in any other person's life this would have been fairly off the radar change but because my life is in public, and I was a very high-profile person at the time. It's like people got to watch this transformation happen, and, you know, not everybody liked this transformation. I just needed to change for myself because it was just becoming so self-destructive. metal in particular like we don't want people to change ever and so there was a big part of that going into the burning red 
dealing with all this baggage. You know, a lot of the lyrics started becoming very personal. Some of it did address my self-destruction. And then I kind of felt like musically, I remember thinking back in my mind, Machine Head was backing ourselves into a corner and that if we continued down this path, we would never get out of this corner. We had to mix it up. We had to do something different. We still had to write great songs. We still had to have great hooks. We still had to have great music that people grabbed onto, but we needed to mix it up somehow, and we needed to do something different. I remember at the time the promotion leading up towards the August 27th release in Australia was so strong and The Burning Red being a very anticipated release on front racks and CD stores, reviews and interviews in all of the metal magazines and TV programming I would read and watch. The album would go on to peak at number 30 on the Australian music charts which was just ridiculous and huge at the time. Yeah, so if you want to hear something really interesting, we've actually had the release date wrong for all these years. We just found out from Mark Palmer, thankfully. Shout out to Mark Palmer. doesn't make any difference whether I know about it. Just because there are things I don't remember doesn't make my actions meaningless. He's now at Nuclear Blast, but he's been literally my whole career, my UK promotion guy. He says that the Burning Red was actually released on the 9th of August, was the official release date. Oh, man, that's crazy. At this point in time, I believe it's Wikipedia that says August the 27th. (laughs) Yes, we thought it was the 27th forever. following some pretty huge releases from Roadrunner such as Fear Factory's Demanufacture and Obsolete, Sepultura's Chaos AD and Roots and it's absolutely crazy the album would come one month after Slipknot's crushing debut. Record labels were becoming all too aware of that mainstream viability of the new metal scene, looking for their version of Korn, Lid Biscuit, Deftones, and it even seemed a lot of well-established bands were either evolving on their own terms or maybe even under the thumb of their respective labels. I mean, even Slayer seemed like they had bent their back with 98's Diabolus and Musica, but the album's drummer, Paul Bostaff, would even go on to say that this was his favourite Slayer album, and as experimental as the band would ever get. Does either one of you have anything even remotely interesting to tell me? Caught my first tube this morning, sir. This is maybe an example of a band being lumped into new metal because of one album and gaining similar criticism as Machine Head for selling out, when in reality, the band were seemingly just riding the wave of their own creativity and expression at the time. 
But in saying that, it has also been documented that some bands on Roadrunner Records had been asked to write more mainstream, accessible music in order to continue capitalizing on the label's mid to late 90s boom, and perhaps even the mainstream success of new metal itself at the time. Most famously evident were Fear Factory's Digimortal and bands like Drykill Logic leaving the label soon after being asked for a more commercial orientated follow-up to their amazing debut. The darker side of nonsense. This is gonna suck. Even the song Back to School was a result of Deftones record label Maverick requesting a more limbiscuit sounding song to release for radio and improve the initial sales of their more experimental album White Pony. So man, no matter how you look at it, there is definitely no simple answer to this. I imagine what's more important is to try and focus on the music without all of that external noise. <laughs> but, I don't know, is that possible? And throughout this decade, Roadrunner were really solidifying their mark as a force to be reckoned with. Amazing bands, amazing releases, and hitting that mainstream crossover and exposure. Oh my god, it was fucking awesome. Here we go, money talk. As an avid fan of Roadrunner Records throughout that decade, it really felt like Machine Head's label was ready to believe in this release. They believed in the band and were ready to back it. Positioning Machine Head on top with their other successful alumni in terms of promotion and support. I mean, how fair of a statement is that? How would you describe your experience as part of the Roadrunner Records roster in 1999 and Machine Head's place within the label? Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. I mean, we were the biggest band on the label, practically. For quite some time, we had the biggest debut in Roadrunner history. Mm -hmm. It was crazy, too, because if you think about it, those two albums, Burn My Eyes and The More Things Change, Roadrunner was a completely independent label when we signed with them. They had no major label distribution anywhere in any of the territories around the world. They were 100% independent. The fact that we sold that many records, those two albums, with all independent channels, no major labels with a push or anything, it was a big deal. At any other time, if there was a major label attached, like what we accomplished would have probably been two to three million, to put it in context, because we were just doing it all independently. And so right around the beginning of the Burning Red, they partnered with, in America, it was Island Def Jam. They had partnered with many other majors by then because they were having a lot of success. And of course, why not? Why not partner with all these major labels and help try and make the label go farther? So yeah, they were spending money. We had big advances. They were giving us tour support. It was a pretty amazing time. They were throwing money around for sure. hear the sentence, Machine Head, The Burning Red, you'll quickly discover a harsh division of opinion and for many, a very particular, mainly negative recount of that era. This time and place gets lumped into what was known as the band's new metal phase. 
a main point of disgust seems to be centralized around your use of rapping style vocals. From the intense backlash in particular with regards to this, it would be fair to find yourself under the impression this style is used constantly and throughout to the detriment of the entire listening experience. It's all about first impressions, right? The annoying thing about all of this is the fact that when you listen to the album, you would hear those criticized vocals feature on only two songs. The damn opening track, Desire to Fire, and of course, the lead single itself, From This Day. impressions right <laughs> now I don't know if you'll agree with me but I do find it a little strange when throughout Machine Head's back catalog you guys have consistently used many vocal choices and styles and have always spitted fast-paced delivery as part of that repertoire and who knows yeah. I mean maybe if the whole new metal scene didn't even exist this wouldn't have become such a focused point of backlash One, two, three, four. Fire was originally written as an intro to Davidian during the Burn My Eyes era and would open Machine Head shows in 94 and 95. And I'll link that in the description. You can watch it for yourself on YouTube. If the crazy late 90s fashion, hair, accessories, and the R&B party vibe music video didn't exist and people could really just hear the songs. When sports came out in 83, I think they really came into their own, commercially and artistically then what you're really left with, in my humble opinion, is a naturally evolved Machine Head album. For me, one that makes sense after the more things change. I Defy even contained a riff written by Logan Matter before he left the band. So for me, there's a lot of links to what Machine Head had previously done. They've always had a bounce to their sound and vocals, so it really seemed like little surprise the songwriting would explore this even more. I sometimes wonder what would have happened if the choice went with an alternative lead single, say I Defy Even or Exhale the Vial, and focused on a more dark, gritty performance-based music video, even helmed by album photographer Dinka himself. I think maybe this album shot itself in the foot before it even had a chance, not necessarily because it led with From This Day, but because of its accompanying music video, everything associated with this album became more concentrated around image rather than sound. Action. 
lot of people are curious. What are your thoughts on the From This Day music video? Because I don't know if you've ever scrolled through the comments on YouTube, but man, never it's a gold mine. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most 1999 thing ever. 90s and cocaine. <laughs> Oh my god, that is the most perfect summarization of that video. The 90s and cocaine, yes. <laughs> it's like Rick James says, cocaine's cocaine the hell of a drug. <laughs> it's a fucking music video. I can look at all of my heroes and go, yeah, that music video sucks. I can look at the Judas Priest hot rocking video where they're all working out. <laughs> the video is so bad. 80s and cocaine. <laughs> I always blame it on cocaine. <laughs> So this next question comes from one of the perks on the Life is Peachy Patreon on the Michael Bolton tier. Patron Dean from Australia asks, The band photography throughout the album booklet is some of my favourite stuff. It was such a strong introduction to the new lineup. What memories do you have from the Burning Red album photo shoot and working with Dean Carr? Cocaine is a hell of a drug. Uh... <laughs> if but there is gee, any memory. I, mean, we, <laughs> I don't have any memories because all we were doing was loads of cocaine and drinking insane amounts of alcohol. Yeah, Dean was a character, oh, man. man. I love Dean Carr. He's still a good friend of mine. Cool. He's a fucking maniac. He's completely out of his mind. Super talented, creative guy. Most of those shots are from in and around Oakland and the San Francisco Wharf and then an old abandoned railroad station in West Oakland. We weren't supposed to be there. We broke into the station, but it just looked amazing. All those photos from inside the booklet, you know, I just, this is the only memory I have from the photo shoot, but he had just done a bunch of coke and where that was in West Oakland was like a lot of homeless people, a lot of crazy random kids running around and these three kids came up on their bicycles and they rode up and they're like, hey, like, what are you guys doing? And, you know, we're just like, oh, we're in a band, we're taking photos and they came up and they were like, you guys look crazy. And Dean Cardis goes, do you want to see crazy? And he just walks up, no hands, no nothing, just blows a giant wad of snot. Oh. <laughs> just like cocaine and snot. And they're just like, holy shit. And they just rode away. Oh my God, it was so funny. <laughs> That's my big memory of that. <laughs> yeah, I'll never be able to look at the photos in the album booklet the same way. <laughs> Fucking so good. He wasn't cheap, that Dean Card. Jesus Christ, those photos cost an arm and a leg. Could have bought a house for it, but they're great photos. Wait, you good looking. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the album itself. Okay, cool. Coming from such an established sound captured by yourself and Colin Richardson, producer on the first two albums, can you explain to me the tone of the Burning Red? because it's rich with texture and soundscape from yourself and the instruments all entwined with a visceral edge. How did you go about finding and defining the sound of the album? It was the same amps that we used, the 5150, and it was the same rigs we had been using for the last previous two albums. But we recorded it at Indigo Ranch with Ross Robinson. I can't remember what mics we were using, like I couldn't tell you any of that stuff. 
I was trying to take the machine head sound and make a Black Sabbath tone. I remember saying that to him. I wanted it to be modern and heavy in the low end, but I wanted it to have that darkness that Black Sabbath has. I mean, a lot of people said that we were kind of going for this new metal thing. And, you know, it's funny because time has a way of rewriting history. We started that record in 1998, started recording it. It sounds weird to say now, but the term new metal was just barely entering the lexicon. I started hearing it maybe around Horn's second record, like, oh yeah, we're new metal. And I was like, what's new metal? <laughs> like, what the fuck is that? To us, we were just playing metal or group. We were more influenced by Biohazard and you know shit like that. And in my head, I was just saying, I want a darker sound like Sabbath, because I mean, I fucking worship Black Sabbath. That's the band that made everything. That's the reason I'm here is because of Black Sabbath. There was no like, hey, let's play new metal <laughs> type of thing. We just wanted to go with this darker sound to go with these darker lyrics and these darker songs. And I thought it would make it sound heavier doing it like this. And then we had Terry Date mix it. A lot of the sound that you're probably referring to is the mix from Terry Date, which we did at Larrabee Studios in West Hollywood, which was the same studio we mixed More Things Change. Even though the records sound dramatically different, it was the same room at the same studio and everything. I don't want to give Ross all the credit because a lot of it should go to Terry Date because the Ross mixes of the record were not very good. <laughs> He had a great engineer, this guy Chuck. Chuck was cool, but it was just very basic and kind of rudimentary sounding. Terry Date really added that polish that kind of made it all come together. I almost feel bad because for Terry Date, by that point, we were really behind schedule. As I do, I tend to revise vocals a lot and vocal ideas. We were super behind on the mixes because I kept on needing to finish vocals up at Indigo while Slipknot was either mixing or recording their album. I would keep on going out there. I'd go in at the end of the night when those guys were finished and then lay down vocals. And then on top of it, I had just kind of reached geek party boy mode because <laughs> now I'm in Hollywood we're in West Hollywood you know we're not in Malibu anymore which is in the middle of nowhere now we're in downtown Hollywood we're going out every night bars hanging out with Dean Carr doing blow I'm a mess every show that comes in town I'm there we're raging we're throwing parties every couple of days at the studio I was such a hungover <laughs> mess yeah, I'm going to apologize right now to Terry Date just for all of the hell I put him through. He definitely added some killer stuff. And in the end, he brought it all together and made something really great. Most songs have a moment where the cleans really soar and take you away to a place of tranquility. 
Of course, Machine Head songs have always contained clean vocals, yet here they were in this evolved, captivating way that I truly believe paved the way for what we have now come to expect as a staple in the overall Machine Head sound to this present day. Where did the exploration of your singing come from and how did it have the confidence to come out like this? Look inside and try and find the part of me that's um, I could always sing and I sang throughout the first two records probably more than most people would realize, but especially when we first started out, we were playing with hardcore bands and death metal bands and punk rock bands and grindcore bands, and so there's no reason for that. <laughs> Let's just screech. I will give Ross a lot of credit for that. Like I said, I was changing, going through all this therapy, and I'm really trying to get back in touch with the old me, and you know, I was like, I wanna sing. It was scary, and it was very scary doing all this singing. personal level a favorite from the album is silver hmm silver i don't know i don't know if that's my favorite no, no. <laughs> damn it's great research on my part then <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i don't know what my favorite song is i like all the songs they're all good yeah well that's cool to hear yeah i'm proud of that record i'm really proud of that record I think Silver is a great song in the sense that it was almost like a pop song. Silver was very well put together. Aru played a big role in that. The verses, we had the bass line going and then we had the bow, no, no. And then Aru had this, reminded me too much of Tool. Bum, ba, bum, bum, ba, bum, bum, dun, 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 dun. It like had this metalish riff going in the verses. It's not making sense to me. We were kind of bickering back and forth about that. And it always bugged the shit out of me. Finally in the mix, I just muted it. <laughs> I was just like, this is going. Bye-bye. <laughs> And he was so pissed off at me for the longest time about it. Some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate uphill. Was there a lot of, or any time at all really, to experiment in the studio? Or was the album essentially written upon entering? Um, it was mostly written. Certainly most of the big songs from this day. Blood, sweat, and tears. to fire those were all finished like done done devil with the king's card exhale the vial those were like the two first songs i defy those were the first three songs
the time of the Burning Reds release, so many of my prized albums were coming from a studio called Indigo Ranch. Founded in the 70s in housing recordings from artists like Neil Diamond, Neil Young, Olivia Newton-John, Indigo Ranch incidentally became the mecca for the makings of some of the most iconic new metal releases of the 90s when Ross Robinson entered the studio in 1994, kicking out the gates with Korn's self-titled debut. And by the end of 99, there were many more game-changing debuts and releases coming from bands like Horn, Slipknot, Sepultura, Soulfly, Limp Bizkit, and Amen. And into the turn of the century, the relationship of command from at the drive-in, and of course, Glassjaw. Everything you've ever wanted to know about silence. And we cannot forget Vanilla Ice's Hard to Swallow. Hey, I love you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you haven't heard anything from this era of his career, which his record label at the time were comparing the reinvention to that of John Travolta and Pulp Fiction, then search Too Cold from 98's Hard to Swallow and also check out episode 22 of the Lit Podcast. See my fate under there was obviously an intense period of music output between 1994 and the year 2000, coming from Ross Robinson produced material captured at Indigo Ranch and from a fan's point of view, looking at the album credits and seeing the text recorded at Indigo Ranch and the name Ross Robinson alongside it, that instantly generated buzz and excitement for myself and some sort of guarantee that this particular combination would result in a special, unique, emotional release. There's the saying, if these walls could talk, and I would then imagine the experiences and moments captured within the studio hidden away in the mountains. Tell me what it was actually like for you creatively and personally as someone on the inside to that experience, making your third album up at Indigo Ranch. six weeks there way the fuck up in the mountains of malibu i mean you're in the middle of nowhere it is treacherous you know driving on one lane roads with a cliff down the side i hated it after a while it's just too much too far away from everything we all live there there was like a spider infested house that was, <laughs> was there it had fucking so many spiders everywhere you'd wake up with spiders crawling on you they never clean the webs <laughs> but it was good in the sense that you could really focus on your craft we were all outside of the studio we would set up in the front of the studio like the dirt in the entrance you know because it's like all like dirt hills we were out there and then people were in the kitchen we had our friend chris from philadelphia out he was hanging out and he played on there and then we kind of put all these crazy mics everywhere and we just had 10 dudes playing that mm, the intro to exhale the vial yeah 
We just wanted it to sound like the King Kong, <laughs> the King Kong drums at the beginning of the movie when they're trying to keep them away or whatever. It was a cool effect, yeah. Slipknot, who was unsigned at the time and was signing to his new record label through Roadrunner, which was IM Recordings through Roadrunner, which was now through a major label, so it was like this big push to set it up. They came down kind of near the end of the first recording session for that record, and we actually lived together for a week, and I didn't know who these were. You know, obviously, they're just nine dudes from Iowa at this point. Like, they're not wearing masks or <laughs> jumpsuits. Or I'm like, nine dudes? How are you going to split the money? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> I have no idea what this band's about. Like, I've never seen pictures. I've never even heard of them. Like, there's no anything around. And so they're just hanging out. A lot of times I was recording, and all those dudes were in the recording booth with Ross listening to me record. And during the recording of the song, Nothing Left, him and Joey Jordanson just ran into the vocal booth and started like screaming behind me during that build-up section in the middle of nothing left. I got nothing left for nobody else. I got nothing. They came in like right as the build-up kicked in and would scream in time. So like it would go, I got nothing left for nobody else. I got nothing left for nobody. Ah. There's a scream in the background. That's Joey Jordanson and Ross that just jumped in and screamed. And I was like, that sounds Awesome. Let's keep that. That's fucking rad. <laughs> Little things like that. It was just a crazy time. And then they started recording, and I'd go in and record vocals after they were done. So I was hanging around with those guys. I started hearing the music, and then they started mixing, and I was constantly around for that because I had to finish my vocals. So I started hearing all the mixes, and I was like, oh, wow, this is some really cool shit. Yeah, we had man. a lot of parties, man. Like, holy shit. It was insane. <laughs> like, we were maniacs. People would drive 25 miles, last seven miles, just all, like, cliffside to, like, have parties at our thing. We had some ragers up there. It was fun. There was times when I wasn't digging it. I remember when we recorded Message in a Bottle. We all went out. We did a bunch of coke with Dean Carr. <laughs> we were coming down from coke and booze and... Aru started playing what starts the song now and I just started fucking around I was like oh that's cool and I was still like high but I'm coming down in my mind it was like this is a good b-side this doesn't need to be on the record we were really trying to do some unique covers for the bonus version of the album we had recorded Bad Brains House of Suffering We had done a cover of Venom's Black Metal that never actually got finished. So in my mind, those were the three bonus tracks for the special edition because, you know, mm -hmm. back then Roadrunner always had the main version, then they had the Digipack with three extra songs and some other bullshit. And then at one point, Ross just really started whipping everybody up, Dave and Adam and Aru, to like, yeah, we got to put this on the record. Look, Orgy's having a big hit with Blue Monday. I was totally not into it. I was so not into it. 
And I kind of fought tooth and nail. In the end, got outvoted, and I was like, all right, maybe this works. We'll try it. The Ross very influential like that. I think it's a good cover. Bizarrely, it's like in our top 10 of Spotify songs now, which is, makes zero sense to me. But it just kind of messed up the flow of the record to me. This song should not be in our top 20. <laughs> like, this song shouldn't be in our top 50 Spotify. We never play it. No one cares. No Machine Head fan cares. I don't know. It was something that we did and like, whatever. After the episode, head over to the Life is Peachy YouTube reaction channel and watch David and Chris react to Message in a Bottle. You gotta conjure the thing that's just screaming to come out of you. Screaming, dying to come out of you. This is it. Everything that you've ever loved has to come through right now. This is all we have. And working with Ross Robinson, was that something you as a band pursued or was it presented by your record label at the time? No, it was both. Ross Robinson was hot. He was a super hot producer. The label definitely wanted to have name people. Wanted to have name producers, wanted to have name photographers, name video people, stuff like that. And so we were happy to go with him because I really like the sound. I really like what he did with vocals. That was my main thing. I just thought that he did something magical with vocalists and vocals. Really pushing that. I felt like the first couple albums, even though I loved the production and I think it still totally stands the test of time, the vocals were a little low. I wanted him to bring out something else that I'd never done before. Ross brought out a lot of the layered, super psychedelic kind of stuff. I had always wanted to do that stuff, and he had an arsenal of pedals and an arsenal of stuff. Really good ear for that. Him and I started freaking out on The Cure, so we'd always listen to The Cure. Now I'm, like, stealing everything I can from The Cure, <laughs> like, sonically. And I wanted to have that kind of disintegration-era Cure layered sound going on with the record. So we really layered it in that way with the effects. And Ross was great. I produced all the albums pretty much after that. And Ross taught me a lot with that. I learned the ropes from him. He would do things like just distort one word, run it through their killer analog system, and he'd just take one word and go, and it'd just add this distortion and just little details that made vocals sound killer.
each song contains pockets where a moment really hits home or solidifies the fact that these are great songs with huge draw cards. What's really nice about this album is the fact that these instances aren't bankable or consistent with expectation. On one side, it will be the bounce or groove of a particular riff. The hook of a chorus. Honestly, the beauty and sound and atmosphere is almost overwhelming. It's big no! or more stripped back, raw and intimate. So many shades of Machine Head here under the umbrella of their conventional sound that there's an immense amount of creativity put into this and a lot of emotion. The Burning Red is an album that bleeds a tone of pain, despair, amidst resistance and determination. When you really stop to think about it, this is a treat for any fan. was the Machine Head ethos we all knew, that sense of perseverance and survival, but here it also was, raw, vulnerable, and extremely personal. was some sort of catalyst, was that somewhere you actually wanted to go? I think it was a combination. It's mm -hmm. definitely where my head was at and him helping to bring that out.
Ross was very inspirational in that way. He was like a psychologist in the studio. He's like trying to get you mad or trying to get you sad. He's trying to get you just in some headspace to bring whatever out, whatever the emotion you're trying to bring out. And it's one of my best vocal performances on record ever. me and got me pissed off and you know, like Logan had just quit I'd be singing a song like Devil with the King's Card which you know required me to be super pissed and super and he'd run up with like a picture of Logan and stick it on the studio window wall so I could see it mid vocal like fuck Logan <laughs> looking back it was very childish but it was hilarious and you know kind of like alright I see what you're going for When you have a song like Five, a song the band have never performed live and you've said in interviews you haven't even really listened to the song since its recording, why choose to even go there in the first place? Why put yourself in that position in the studio? It was very personal. This self-destructive path that I had been on for quite a while. A lot of it stemmed from shit like that that had happened. I never try and write anything. When I write lyrics, I just write lyrics. I just try ideas. I don't know what I tried originally with the music for Five. And Aru, our new guitar player at the time, he had written most of the music for that. It was all very fresh for me, going through therapy, dealing with all this shit, and peeling the onion about the molest. So it was all at the front of my brain. So I started singing about that one day, and probably the chorus lyrics, and it stuck. And I was like, yeah, this is what the song is about. I was terrified of putting out the burning red. Five and the burning red were this giant, horrific scar that I was peeling open and sifting through. It was very traumatic for me. I remember when I was done with those two songs, I didn't even want to put them out. I wanted to take them off the record. I was just like, I can't. I don't want to hear this every day. I don't want to think about this. And then I lived with it for a while. Those two songs in particular, Five is dealing with me being molested when I was five years old. The Burning Red is about me trying to commit suicide at 17. Dealing with both of them, even just recording them, it took me a long time to be able to even go record the vocals for Five. 
I probably dragged that one out as long as I possibly could because I knew I was writing about it. The lyrics were about that, and I tried it a couple times and couldn't get through it, and then I wrote a new batch of lyrics for Five, and I went in there, and I, I took off all my clothes, and I was naked, and I sang the whole song. I probably sang two takes of it, and then I just collapsed on the ground. And I collapsed on the ground and just laid on the ground for like an hour and a half in the bottom of the vocal booth, just on the carpet. <clears throat> Adam, our bass player, came in at some point and just kind of sat with me for a while. You know, eventually I just got up and I got dressed and I went out. There was like a bench in front of the studio and the bench overlooked the ocean. I just remember sitting out there and I sat on that bench for like three hours, just staring, processing everything that I had just done and I was shattered. I was just fucking shattered. The whole time I was sitting there, I started writing lyrics just in my head, and I came up with the little guitar line in my head for uh, The Burning Red. I don't know if it was the next day. I want to say it was the next day, but I went in and I said, hey, I'm going to try this thing that I thought out while I was sitting on the bench looking at the ocean the other day after this traumatic experience of singing the song. And we did it, and we did it really fast. I think we probably played through the music maybe one or two times and recorded it, and then I sang. It was this very vulnerable, very... You know, I was putting so much of my life out. That's what freaked me out. I finished it, and I listened to it, and I added the piano. I added all the other stuff. And then that's when I freaked out because I was like, I don't want people to know about this, about my life. Touched on this in other songs. I had touched on it in None But My Own from the first album. Touched on it in Spine off the second album. Now I'm telling the whole story. I'm in a garage. This guy, all this stuff that this dude did to me, like, it was raw. It was almost too much for me to think about. And so that's why I freaked out. I was like, I don't want this on the record. I don't want people to know this. And then after a while, I was like, if there's anybody else in the whole world who has gone through this or a similar experience, maybe this will help them get through it. I almost killed myself because of what happened. Maybe somebody will hear this when they're about to kill themselves. And maybe this song will help them realize that it'll get better that there's light at the end of the tunnel to just keep on taking one step after the other and get through it and that made me ultimately decide to put it on coming into this episode i wasn't sure if i was going to share this story can't rain all the time yeah like a, a lot of us out there i've been experiencing a pretty tough year mentally and so running is very, very important for me. It's exercise, but for the main reason, it gets me out for fresh air by myself with my own head and provides a moment for me to process things, to make sense of certain things. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I also enjoy my favorite music. 
And on one of these recent runs, it was following a night where I was lying in bed, my mind just really going to some intense places, thinking things I normally wouldn't. And now here I am on my run the next day, just doing the best I can really to keep running, to keep thinking, to keep moving. And as my head's a whirlwind of all these thoughts and feelings, the song, The Burning Red, comes on through my headphones. Instantly, the opening guitar seemed to silence the noise and I've been running through the woods and everything felt more quiet and calm and then while going deeper into the forest, as you sang, colder and colder, just hold on to me. You know, with the guitars and the drums soaring. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It, it started to rain. Whoa. and I went with it, running <laughs> with my arms out and the rain falling on my face. And I don't know, in that moment, I let it out. And at the same time, it helped accepting it all. It's just one of those things where that song, man, came to me at the exact right time and really helped with feeling like I could maybe move forward. And the rest of the run was really really awesome and on, i guess my point is what you put yourself through on some of those songs it didn't go unnoticed putting so much of yourself into the art because over 20 years later i'm no doubt one of many who have reaped support and positive rewards from it man so thank you for sharing that story oh man thank you for <laughs> the music when so much goes into writing and recording an album so much emotion and especially with this release so much of yourself 
personally, was it ever frustrating for you that in many ways a lot of the things going on in the music scene, in pop culture, seemed to really distract from the music and somewhat overshadowed the burning red? Yeah, I mean, I had shaved my head after the More Things Change record came out. If you've ever grown your hair from short to long, there's like two or three awkward stages. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like where your hair just looks like shit no matter what you do. So you got to do something. Girlfriend, who's now my wife, got me all drunk and talked me into shaving my head, <laughs> which was ridiculous. I would be her Ken doll. Now she's like, we should dye her hair. And I was just like, yeah, that'd be cool. You know, like this is 1998. No one had blonde hair at this point. So I just did it. I wanted something to transition me. And then the photo shoots, I think were quite surprising to people because I guess they didn't realize that I had shaved my head and had toured like that for a year. And so that first new batch of photos comes around, and I think the metal genre, the rock and roll genre, had a lot of emphasis on image. Marilyn Manson, Cole Chamber, Orgy. You know, we were just like, fuck it. Everybody else is doing it. Who cares? We're in a fucking metal band. Like, we can do whatever the fuck we want. Rock and roll was about pushing buttons, and certainly nothing we were wearing was crazier than things that I'd seen many other bands wear, you know, from ZZ Top to anybody. The important thing was that I had an onion on my belt, which was the style at the it time. Was the <laughs> like, it's like they say on The Simpsons, like, it was the style at the time. It was the style at the time. <laughs> we just rolled with it. It superseded the music. When I look back at that, I have no regrets about wearing orange racing jacket with orange camo pants and spiking my hair. I'm in a band. I can do whatever I want. The first video we dropped, I'm rocking cornrows. Raiden? It's a new look. To me, this was more punk rock. I was drawn from GBH and Discharge and Liberty Spikes. I wasn't drawing from new metal or whatever people lumped in. So these guys have been pissing you off for a long time. That was the thing, and it became the focus, and it didn't turn people away it just delayed a lot of people hearing the music because they're just right. like, whoa, it's different. And uh, the band sounds different. Here, take two of these. Ah, new print, little, yellow, different. And then, of course, at the time, many other bands had come out and they're very popular. It was a crazy time. We mixed the record doing a huge press tour. I'm doing press for a month. We go to Europe, we do America, we go to Japan, we go to Australia. Like, it is exhausting. We finally come back and then we jump on Coal Chamber, Machine Head, Slipknot, Amen opening. And this is the first tour we're doing right as the record drops. Then we finally saw Slipknot. We're like, oh my God, they wear masks. That's crazy. The record had come out and then they're just a phenomenon. We go to see them on OzFest, second day to the tour, and they're just killing it. And we're like, holy shit. At this point, we now realize, oh, they wear jumpsuits and it's this whole crazy Texas Chainsaw vibe. Now, then we jump on this tour and... I can't even explain to you, I can't even put it into words. They're the fucking hottest band on the face of the earth. They're selling ten times the merchandise as Machine Head, Coal Chamber, and Amen combined. <laughs> like, every night. Every show is fucking complete chaos and insanity. And, you know, you gotta remember, everybody thinks of Slipknot and they think of arenas and, like, this giant band. Their record's been out for, like, I think three or four weeks at this point. <laughs> and... We're still playing clubs. Even this giant bill, Coal Chamber, who's got a gold record, Machine Head, over a million records sold worldwide. We're still playing like 700 capacity clubs. 
800 cap rooms. Slipknot wants to go up and throw their kegs on stage, <laughs> nine dudes, and we're like, bro, there's no room. And so we're fighting like crazy now. We're the main support. We're not going to strike all of our stuff so that you can have your kegs <laughs> on stage. Play the show without the kegs. Of course, at the time, that seemed like a reasonable request. It's just the keg player to me. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he's a very important part of the band now, important part of the show, as are all the guys. But I remember we did one show. We're kind of at odds with Slipknot. We're not going to strike. Cole Chamber's not going to strike. You're just going to have to do the show without all of the side stuff. They're just like, fuck you. We're not going to play. The audience outside has a meltdown. And they're outside. It's like, oh, it's Machine Head. So the promoter comes back and he goes, I will pay you not to play and let Slipknot play. <laughs> and we were just like, what? This is so insulting to say, but this is how hot Slipknot is. So from that point on, we just say no. They talk a bunch of shit outside. They're signed to Ross's label. Everybody thinks Slipknot signed to Roadrunner. They're actually signed to IM Recordings, which is Ross's label, through Roadrunner. Ross is kind of like getting a little full of himself. He's starting to do tons of press. He's the hottest producer around. He starts going on this press tour and now starts talking a ton of shit about Machine Head because of this and some other stuff that's going on. I mean, I just exploded. We paid this motherfucker $35,000 plus two points on the Burning Red, and now you're going to go around talking shit about us and blowing up Slipknot because they're on your label? He's like, this Slipknot would fucking shit all over Machine Head. They'd crawl over broken glass and swim across oceans. And I'm like, whoa, dude. You know, we're having friction with Slipknot. We've got friction with Ross. And after that, I hated Ross's guts for years after that. We finally got past it, but I never looked at him the same. I never could take him seriously. All that hippy-dippy California bullshit that he used to spew, I was like, I don't believe it. I don't believe you. So did that then taint the experience of recording The Burning Red for you? Oh, absolutely. It was a slap in the face. You know, and I got past it, and like I said, all those positives at the beginning of it, but the way that it all transpired, and then we were supposed to take Slipknot out on tour with us. It was going to be Machine Head, Slipknot over in Europe, them opening for us. Main support, I should say. And on the last day of tour with Cole Chamber and them, they pull out of the tour. I remember Clown and Joey came on the bus. And I got to give it to them. They were totally straight up, totally honest. It wasn't sneaky. It wasn't manager bullshit. They both came up and like, hey, our record's doing really, really good in the UK. We're going to go headline. We're going to pull off the tour. Unfortunately, I was on a shit ton of coke and hammered drunk, and I got super pissed. I was very late notice, and then I was like, wait, let me get this straight. You were supposed to be supporting us. Now you're going to jump off our tour and go and headline at the exact same time that we're going over there. So now you're our competition? I was like, oh, I was pissed. I was super pissed. They're like, we're sorry you feel about that way, but this is what we got to do, and this is what our manager thinks we should do. So we wanted to let you know face-to-face, -face. and they did, and they fucking went out and killed it for a long time I couldn't even listen to the Slipknot record I was like fuck Slipknot and it was funny because at the end of that tour cycle we did a festival in Wisconsin their record had been out for a year and they were the headliner and I remember it was the only time we ever played Message in a Bottle live 
some radio station down Wisconsin was playing it. Record label was like, play that song. I was like, okay. We played it. It was a dud. Nobody gave a fuck. It was pouring rain. It was just a disaster. It was horrible. And I remember going up and I was watching Slipknot from the side of the stage. I had to give it to them, man. They did it. They're playing in a cornfield in the middle of Wisconsin to 20,000 plus people. And every motherfucker there was losing their mind. I was like, holy shit. They did it. And I remember Clown saw me at one point standing on the side of the stage. And he just stopped really still, pointed at me. And he sat there and he tapped his heart with his fist. And I did the same thing back to him. I was like, yeah, you know what? Good for you, man. Good for you. Yeah, that seems like it was some sort of much-needed closure at the time. Right. To me, it really seems that a lot of that Machine Head era comes down to perseverance. Looking back on the album now, what does that timestamp in your life represent in retrospect? I look at that record as the thing that allowed us to carry on all these years later. To me, that's where we pivoted and said, it's okay to bring more melody in. It's okay to write shorter songs. It's okay to not just appeal to death metal dudes and hardcore dudes, and that we can appeal to a bigger audience. It was a successful record. It's Mm -hmm. often overlooked in the Roadrunner catalog of successful records because Slipknot came along. They became the next biggest debut album. But so many other records all around that era, bands just exploded. Kid Rock sold 10 million records. Pretty soon, Linkin Park is selling another 10 million records. Like, it was just this unprecedented time for record sales. And, uh, you know, I think to some people, certainly the major label aspect that was now connected to Roadrunner, they looked at our record as a bit of a failure because it only did half a million records worldwide, <laughs> you know, which is crazy to say now because we all wish we could sell that many records worldwide now because no one's got sales. But at the time, the labels were just like, oh, and then Nickelback comes along and they sell 10 times what Slipknot sold. In the course of 18 months, you've got bands just selling gajillions of records. And to them, our record didn't do very good. You trust me? Of course I trust you. You know, for me, if we wouldn't have made the Burning Red, we wouldn't be here today, unquestionably. We had to make a record that expanded our horizons, forged a path, a new path. We had to do something different or we'd be dead. We wouldn't be here. And if we did, no one would have cared. And that record did that. All these years later, we play a song like Blood, Sweat and Tears, We play a song like From This Day. People lose their minds, dude. From This Day brings the house down. Maybe the best live song in our arsenal. It's such a good feeling. There was so many people who tried to shit on it. People tried to tear it down. And those songs still stand the test of time.
a song like The Burning Red, which I was terrified of releasing. And dude, I can't even tell you how many people asked me for that song. Please play that song. And you know, you hear shit like that, and it really makes you understand that you made a difference. It humbles you and goes, yeah, that was the right call. That was the right choice. Set aside the business stuff and the rivalry stuff and the whatever. People would come up to me those first few tours, and they'd be like, is what you're singing about in five true? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, dude, that's my life as well. What you're singing about happened to me too. Guys, girls would come up to me and say the same thing, and they'd be like, I'm so grateful that you sang what you did and said what you did. It helped me get through something. It helped me relate to something. It helped me realize that I'm not alone out there in the world. That's the type of shit that forever stays with me. I still have those conversations with people regularly. Now, 22 years later, that's the power of music right there. Supercharger era guitarist Aru Luster was such a treat for Machine Head fans, particularly of that period. And yeah, it also looked like a treat for the two of you because it seemed like such a great catch up of pastimes and memories. Yeah. Aru Luster joined the band in 1998, replacing Logan Matter, and he instantly became the point of blame for things not sitting well with fans drummer on the burning red and at the time dave mclean stated that you guys were not trying to emulate popular trends and that you simply wanted to sound different yet for some reason the backlash towards aru was really strong and directed often towards him and in many ways overshadowed much of the four-year period he was in the band as with Derek Green from Sepultura, member replacement is such a touchy subject for many and often speaks louder than the music itself. Yeah, 20 years later, it's really refreshing to see so many fans finally coming out of the woodwork and enjoying this album, speaking up for it and that lineup of Machine Head. And the contribution of Aru while he was in the band, it seems finally there is now this army of support really cheering on the Burning Red. And it's really cool because Aru himself has stated in some interviews that the Burning Red is actually his most proud album under his own creative belt. So watching this interview was yeah, really enjoyable and it made me curious is there any sense of closure for you as a result of that podcast interview? And 
any things you took away from it that perhaps even lightened the load from any baggage accumulated from that era of Machine Head's career? Oh, definitely. That was really the first time we had talked about any of that stuff. Certainly in the closure aspect, we were entering into a new partnership deal. Bands are like a partnership here in America. Actually, no such thing as a band. When you start being a band that makes money, you become a partnership. He brought up something about all the negativity that was going on after the record. There's a lot of money talk and a lot of money problems. And he was like so negative for a while. You know, Dave quit for a couple of weeks and joined another band. We're in the touring cycle. He said something to me. He said, I'm sorry for the role that I played in that because I was adding a lot of negativity and toxicity to the situation. And that was rad to hear from him. That was the first time he's ever said that to me. That was really the first time we had even discussed any of this since he quit in 2003. It was definitely a lot of closure. It was a great conversation. It was funny. I think one of the things that maybe was the most surprising thing for people was how long we knew each other. His time in the band was shorter than the time that I knew him before he was in the band. Mm. Getting to kind of talk about that stuff because they see a record and they see this when there's this whole kind of backstory. Your life's like that when you're in a band because you're in the public eye. So it was really cool. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Mm, that was one of yeah. my biggest podcasts of the last couple of months. People really enjoyed that. Oh, man, that's so nice to hear. I'm, <laughs> I'm stoked for the two of you. And obviously the fans are reacting to that too. Thank you. How will you be celebrating the Burning Red this year? Jared and I do a thing called Electric Happy Hour every Friday, and we play songs, and we've done these full album playthroughs. So we're going to do the Burning Red for the first time in its entirety, the 29th of July. Yes, amazing. Yeah, it's a pretty big deal, man. I've been running through the songs. I ran through I Defy for the first time <laughs> like 22 years. We've never played it live. We've never played five. We played Devil with the King's Card once. So yeah, it's going to be pretty cool, man. I think it's going to be really fun. We're not going to play Message in a Bottle. Not doing that. So how are you feeling about playing live? I'm nervous. I don't want to cry. <laughs> That's like my only thing. I hate crying on stage. Like, I don't want to cry during a performance. I hate doing that. I've done it once or twice in my whole career. I don't like doing it. My hope is that I can just stay focused enough on the lyrics and the music and my performance that I don't dig too much. Yeah. I don't know if I'm looking forward to it, but I'm looking forward to playing the album. Well, I know there will be a lot of love and support out there for you, man. Definitely throughout it. And it's a really special occasion to play and to hear some of those songs for the very first time. Yeah. Yeah. It goes without saying, I will be looking forward to it. That much I know. (laughs) (laughs) So until then, Rob Flynn, thank you so much for joining me on the Life is Peachy podcast. Right on. Yeah, you're welcome. I really appreciate it, dude. Awesome, dude. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was cool. I love this job. There we have it. Episode 8 of the Life is Peachy podcast. My chat with Rob Flynn and all things The Burning Red. Of course, Episode 9 will be coming up next. It's 
an amazing chat. And if you're eager to find out who and what, you can always head over to the Patreon where there are a bunch of perks, including early guest and album reveal, bonus episode content, and if there are questions you've always wanted to ask some of your favorite artists, now there's a way. I feature questions from patrons in my episodes and they can be submitted to me exclusively through patreon.com slash lifeispeachypodcast. You're out of your mind. Ain't it cool? Whether it's donating a few bucks to the virtual tip jar, spinning the CD disc here, or joining fellow patrons Majika Shields and Vaginator over on the Michael Bolton tier, every little bit truly does help. Due to the use of music and sound clips, these episodes are not monetized, and that's of course fine. I wouldn't change it because this is the way I love to make these episodes and tell these stories. But I would be lying if I didn't say every little bit helps contribute to the time it takes putting this all together. In layman's terms, more support means more episodes. Get on with the ceremony! Until we hang out again next month, I would love this chance to say a very big thank you for spending your time and energy with me today. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. That was incredible. Is it good for you? (laughs) I've had better. If this is your first time checking out Life is Peachy, then there are definitely more episodes waiting for you. I hope you have fun with them. Big love to everyone. Have an amazing day. See you at the party, Richter. Bye-bye. You know, I can uh, eat a peach for hours. This episode was written, edited, and produced by myself. Recorded from the comfort of my own home. DIY style. With each guest calling in from wherever they happen to be around the world at that particular time. The Life is Peachy theme song is an original tune for this podcast, written by Tim Richardson. The Life is Peachy podcast is not monetized. All music rights and credits go to its rightful owners. Further details can be found in the description of the specific episode. All artwork is original and illustrated for the Life is Peachy podcast by Chris Lisa Leafting.